Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning, everybody. For those of you who I don't yet know, my name is Becca Stewart, and I serve as the pastor of spiritual formation here at DCC. And I'm glad to be back teaching this morning as we return to the Gospel of Luke. If you've been around the last four weeks, you know that we were exploring some other things. We had a couple guest teachers with us, but this morning we're going to jump back in to working our way through Luke. Um, Today we're going to be in chapter 7, but in case you just need a little bit of refresher, where we last left off in chapter 6, Jesus was giving what's known as the Sermon on the Plain which is a set of very practical teachings um, pertaining to kind of like real-life, everyday stuff. And what it seems like in Luke chapter 7, as you'll see, is that it's like now he's beginning to model how to actually live out what he had talked about in the Sermon on the Plain. So if you'd like to follow along, I'm going to be reading from Luke 7. Page numbers should be on the screen. The Bibles are underneath the seat in front of you if you need one. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10, if you'd like to follow along. This is what it says. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Well, to us modern readers, what likely sticks out here in this story is the healing. Not just that Jesus heals this man's servant, but that he does it from a distance. And we're going to get to that eventually this morning. But what we might miss 
that would have immediately caught the attention of Luke's original hearers is that this story is about a centurion, likely a member of Herod's guard, which was organized according to the Roman military system. Although he may not have been a Roman citizen himself, he was most likely a Gentile, meaning not a Jew, and was given authority by the Roman Empire. Now, most scholars agree that the Gospel of Luke was written around AD 70, but why would that matter? Well, it was in April of that year, just three days before the Passover, that the Roman army began to besiege Jerusalem. Eventually, the city and the temple were destroyed. According to the historian Josephus, the city was ravaged by murder, famine, and cannibalism. The Romans even took the valuables that they had looted from the temple and put them out on display. And Luke's story here is about the enemy. One of the things, um, one of the things we might lose in working our way through a book like this and kind of breaking it up into sections over time is that we can lose the continuity of what comes before. And it might be hard to remember, but about two months ago, our friend Carrie Jenkins was here and she taught on Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Just a little bit before the part that we find ourselves in today, this is what Jesus had said. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And then the section kind of finishes out by him saying, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And so just six short verses later, we find Jesus here in Luke 7 practicing what he preached. The centurion's servant was sick and was about to die, and he sent some elders of the Jews to ask for Jesus' help. Now, the elders here were local civic and religious leaders who obviously had some kind of relationship with the centurion. And there's a lot that we don't know here, like what exactly that relationship was or what was motivating each of the parties involved here. Regardless of the unknowns, Jesus says yes. Yes to helping the enemy. As Jesus is on the way to help the centurion, he's met by a second group of people. And this time it's the man's friends who come and they have a message for the centurion. Again, it tells us this, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Well, this is kind of confusing, right? I mean, just a moment ago, the Jewish elders were making a case for why this guy was so deserving, and now he's expressing that he's not deserving of having Jesus under his roof. New Testament scholar Joel Green suggests that this confusing uh, series of events is Luke's way of emphasizing a point. If Jesus here is meant to be modeling love for the enemy, then the question arises, how far does that go? How far does doing good to and for the enemy actually extend? Now, as a Gentile, the centurion would have believed that he had no access to Jesus. So he sends others on his behalf. But Jesus' immediate willingness to come and assist him creates a crisis. As Green explains, if Jesus enters his home, the centurion must then extend hospitality to him. But this would grossly overstep Jewish sensibilities. And so a second group is sent to intercept or to catch Jesus before he reaches the centurion's home. In other words, the emphasis here is on assumed insider-outsider lines, 
And Luke wants us to see Jesus' apparent failure to draw these kinds of lines. He doesn't seem to care about what might be uncomfortable or seen as inappropriate. For Jesus, there are no parameters when it comes to loving the enemy. Since the centurion believes that this will create an uncomfortable situation, he suggests something else. And so again, this is what he says, or this is what the messengers bring to Jesus. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. The centurion here appeals to his own experience and understanding of authority and asks Jesus to heal from a distance. It's worth mentioning that although Jesus had healed others in the Gospel of Luke up until this point, that those being healed had always been present to him. This man, the enemy, somehow knows who Jesus is and what he is capable of in a way that apparently no one else in Israel knows. And it blows Jesus away. The text tells us that Jesus was amazed at his faith. Some versions say that he marveled. The Greek word here means to be astonished out of one's senses or awestruck. And there's actually one other story in the Gospels where we are told that Jesus is amazed or marvels in response to faith. It's in Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to read it because I want you to be able to compare these two stories. So if you want, you can turn with me. It's Mark 6, verses 1 through 6, and again, the page number's up there if you need it. Here's what it says in Mark 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's the wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. In both of these stories, Jesus responds with amazement to faith for the presence of it in the centurion and for the lack of it from those in his hometown. Now, I think that the tendency here is to read these stories to say something like, Jesus and therefore God are pleased with and respond well to faith, by which we typically mean belief in and certainty of God. And it becomes a bit transactional, like if I can just have enough correct belief in God, then God will work in my favor. But is that what's intended here? Today, I want to invite us to look at faith again to look at Jesus again and to reconsider why our faith might matter to Jesus. If we want to define what faith actually is, a good starting place is the Bible itself. The book of Hebrews tells us that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. 
If you're familiar, Hebrews 11 goes on to recount example after example of those who have displayed great faith. And then in verse 39, it says this, that these were all commended, or that all of these people were commended, yet none of them received what had been promised. Faith here does, in fact, have an element of certainty, but not in the way that we tend to correlate it to to believe. For the heroes of the faith from Hebrews 11, what they saw did not make them certain, Instead, they were certain of what they did not see. Faith has something to do with how we see, not what we see. And how we see or the quality of our seeing is all about trust. To have faith in Jesus is to trust Jesus. And to me, this is fundamentally different than having belief in Jesus. David Benner in his book, Soulful Spirituality, says this. In Christianity, the shift from faith as trust to faith as belief was primarily a product of the Enlightenment. The result was a profound shift from the personal interpersonal to the impersonal. Trust is always placed in someone or something, and our act of trust is an act of leaning into the object of trust with openness and expectant hopefulness. For Christians, trust in God was slowly degraded, however, into trust in certain thoughts about God. If these thoughts were judged to be true, one was judged to have faith. But the object of faith in this debased expression of faith is in actuality thoughts, not God. Equating faith and beliefs truncates and trivializes spirituality by reducing it to a mental process. Thoughts are, quite simply, a poor substitute for relationship. Whenever the holy other is thought to be contained in one's beliefs and opinions, divine transcendence is seriously compromised and personal relationship with the spirit minimized. The centurion, as far as we know, never physically saw Jesus. And yet he was certain of what he did not see. And Jesus was amazed by his trust, his faith. Conversely, the people in Jesus' hometown had actually physically seen Jesus, and it seems like this might have tripped them up a bit. What they saw made them certain, and this certainty turned out to blind them. Jesus was amazed by their lack of trust, their lack of faith. Jesus was amazed. Have you ever really paused to consider what it means for Jesus to experience feelings like this? That the God of the universe incarnate would be surprised, astonished, shocked, It's easy to have an impression of Jesus to be maybe a bit dull or emotionless or maybe even just very stoic. It's ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous, but I think if we're honest, many of us have been actually handed a very stoic and impersonal version of Jesus that downplays his humanity. And I think that this impacts how we perceive and relate to him. Perhaps one of the greatest gifts I've been given in terms of tools for interacting with a text did not come from my time in seminary or from some great scholarly work, but from my friend, Carrie, who has a very high value on the art of curiosity and winsomely brings it into her study of Jesus. She has taught me how to read Jesus through the lens of his humanity, to get curious about what it would have been like to be Jesus, a real embodied person who feels all the feels. 
If you go back and you read through the Gospels intentionally looking for the embodied practices of Jesus, you begin to see just how much he sees and hears and touches and feels. And it strikes me that in Luke 7, Jesus is amazed. Like he has big feelings about the centurion's ability to really see him. And he is amazed. He has big feelings about those in his hometown's inability to really see him. How very human of Jesus to have feelings attached to being seen and not seen. If Jesus is our model of what it is to be fully human, right, the journey that we are all invited into of becoming most fully who God created us to be, if Jesus models full humanity, then what this tells us is that these kinds of feelings and longings are not a sign of weakness or immaturity. They are a part of what it means to be human. Jesus in these stories is having a very healthy human response to being seen and not seen, trusted and not trusted for who he was truly created to be. And isn't it interesting that when he's in a place where this kind of being seen is not happening, the living out of who he was created to be is somehow less accessible. Remember in Mark, it said that he cannot do any miracles in his hometown except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Now, what if this is not saying your ability to be healed, whatever that means, is dependent on your faith in Jesus, but instead simply reflecting back what is true about the human journey, that our ability to be and become is impacted by how the collective around us practices seeing. As the 18th century German poet and playwright Goethe once said, if we take man as he is, we make him worse. But if we take him as he should be, we make him capable of what he can be. If we take people as they are, we make them worse, right? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? But if we take them as they should be, then we make them capable of being what they can be. Like the centurion who knows something about authority and how it works, applies it to Jesus, and trusts what he is capable of. It means nothing for me, right, to have someone simply believe with certainty that I am real, that, that I am just what they see in front of them. It garners no grand reaction out of me. It doesn't compel me toward anything. However, it means everything for someone to really see me moving towards me in a way that displays hope in who I am and trust what they cannot yet see. I'll never forget where I was, uh, what I was, what I, where I was and what I was doing the day that I received a text from Michael asking if I would ever consider teaching on a Sunday morning. I wasn't on staff yet. I had never held the title of pastor. And although I had some experience of speaking in front of kind of smaller groups of people, I had never preached at a church. Um, and it was definitely not something I grew up with, right, seeing a woman in this capacity. And I remember responding and telling him that his invitation kind of brought out these two feelings simultaneously of both being completely terrified and also like it was tapping into something I deeply desired but hadn't yet known or discovered. I mean, isn't this part of the reason why it can be so powerful to work with the therapist, 
And of course, they're trained, they're skilled guides, but what really allows a space like that to be transformative is the underlying trust that the client is capable of growth and healing. Isn't this one of the sweetest gifts in life when we have people like this? who trust us, who put their faith in us, and it's one of the sweetest gifts that we can offer to others. Hopefully by now you've heard, at least heard of, um, an eight-week experience that we offer here at DCC called the Peacemaking Pathway, and many of you have participated in it. Um, Each week we cover a different theme having to do with being an everyday peacemaker, and one of the themes is simply called C. In particular, we talk about the practice of seeing the image of God in another, and we talk about it as a practice because it isn't our natural bent. It's something we must intentionally cultivate, especially as it pertains to the other, to the one who is different than us, to the one on the other side of us, right, the enemy. In Luke 7, it turns out that both Jesus and the centurion have something to teach us about loving the enemy, The centurion is showing us that it's more, it's about more than just loving despite who one appears to be. It's about loving in light of who they can be. We are called to be people who are sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And I think there's such a beautiful invitation here to be who the church can be, to our unique role and offering in the world. And I hope you hear that challenge today for us as a church to be and become this kind of community, a collective of seers, both with one another and as it pertains to how we show up in the world. But there's another invitation here that I don't want us to miss or overlook. The invitation to place our faith in Jesus. Some of us who come from a certain kind of church background might have just felt something when I said that. Place your faith in Jesus. Last week, Brian McLaren was here, and he talked about the language of being saved and salvation and what words like this have come to mean. And some of us hear a phrase like, place your faith in Jesus in our mind and our, our bodies are instantly reminded of things like altar calls or, or overly emotional, sometimes borderline manipulative appeals to give your lives over to something We're placing our faith in Jesus meant something more like signing on a dotted line than a personal invitation from Jesus to be seen and to see, to trust and to be trusted. And many of us are actively recovering from these realities. We're attempting to repair and put back together the pieces of our faith. And I can't help but wonder, is it possible that some of us are more like those in Jesus' hometown when it comes to our faith in Jesus? We've had past experiences with him or with those who represent him, maybe even ones that are literally attached to our own hometowns, that now cause us to show up and say, isn't that the carpenter? Isn't that Mary's son? And perhaps without even realizing it, we put limits on Jesus in our lives. In Luke 7, Jesus is healer and savior and Lord. He is fully God. And simultaneously, Jesus is fully human. He desires to be seen by us, trusted by us. Jesus longs for us to place our faith in him. What if our faith is meant to be more than just an intellectual endeavor, but a fully embodied experience of the divine who became human? What would it look like for us in this season of our lives to enter into relationship with the God of the universe who is holy other and also 
just like us. I wonder what labels from our past do we need to release Jesus from so that we can be free to practice seeing him for who he can be in our lives and in the world. I don't know where you're at today, but this connects deeply for me. And they say that you tend to preach the sermon that you most need to hear. I'm not sure if I've ever been more keenly aware than I am right now of my own longing, my own desire to be seen. Not just as I am, but for who I am becoming, for who God created me to be. And this season for me, if I'm honest, has been full of a lot of self-doubt. A lot is shifting in me and around me. And there's something for me truly comforting about knowing that Jesus gets it, that Jesus is, Jesus is in it with me. And maybe most of all, Jesus here reminds me that my longings and my desires are actually pointing to something that I was made for more, that I'm on a journey that is good, and that I can trust him in it. So how do we practice this kind of trust? How do we become more attuned to where our humanity intersects with a God who chose to become like us? There's probably a number of ways, but I'm going to point you to a resource that I've probably pointed to you like 10 times before. Um, but if you haven't heard of it, we have something called the, uh, the Spiritual Formation Podcast here. And it's not like podcasts like you think, I'm not like interviewing people or something like that. It's literally like 10 minutes or less, a simple guided practice. And these are contemplative and reflective practices that help you engage the reality that you are an embodied being. And that connection with God is an embodied experience. Right? It's not just in your head. God is not just something that we think about. God is someone that we holistically experience. And so if that interests you, if you haven't found that before, you can go on any um, podcast platform and just look for DCC Spiritual Formation Podcast. And the other thing I'll say is this. If, if any of this stirs in you today, but you just feel stuck in it, and I can relate to this, like feeling stuck in the ability to actually see beyond, to move beyond kind of like where you are right now. I'd encourage you, if you aren't already, to explore the possibility of this being a season to allow a trained guide to come alongside you. A therapist, a spiritual director, maybe a coach of some kind. And if you don't know, we have lists that we put together of therapists and of spiritual directors that we'd love to refer you to. And you can find those. You, you can ask about that in the participate area or on our website at denverchurch.org. Friends, wherever you are today, I want to invite you to consider what might it look like for you now in the season that you find yourself in right now to see, to trust, and to have faith in Jesus afresh. Let's pray together. Jesus, this feels tender to me. Maybe just because it's me. Maybe because I can assume my connection with others and our vulnerable places of longing and desire. God, thank you that you came and made yourself like us. Thank you for your humanity. Would you help us to relate to you, God, in these ways where we are able to see and also offer these longings to one another? And would you help us to be these people in the world with one another and as we go through our day-to-day -day lives, God, would we be mindful of the power of seeing, of seeing for who people were created to be. God, thanks for loving us. 
Help us know that you are good and you are with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for engaging with our weekly teaching. Before you go, we wanted to highlight a few things going on in the life of our community. As DCC, we hope that you will find a community that encourages and challenges you in your faith. And one of our favorite ways to do this is through our community groups. These groups seek to grow closer to God, share life and friendship with each other, and care practically for their neighbors and their communities. We have a number of groups listed on our website. So whether you're looking for other parents with young kids, fellow young professionals, or want to engage with our new Falling Upward group to explore what it means to live out the second half of life, we have a group for you. And if you don't see the group you're looking for, we would love to equip and empower you to create that space and lead a group of your own. You can visit our website at denverchurch.org groups to get connected and find a group for you. To stay connected with everything that is happening in the life of our community, we encourage you to sign up for our weekly email through our website, denverchurch.org, or download our DCC app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. Again, thank you for listening. We hope to be together again soon. And now may you, our siblings in Christ, continue to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that together we might be a healing presence in our world. Go in peace.